Tag und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hello and welcome. Greetings from City Breaks. This is episode three of City Break Munich, which I'm going to devote to the Summer Palace in Munich, the Schloss Nymphenburg, and to Ludwig I, one of the Bavarian kings who's very much associated with it, and a bit more juicily to Lola Montez, the lady who managed to, how can I put it, seduce him perhaps, and live off him for quite a long time. So then, the Summer Palace was built actually about five kilometres from the Altstadt, from the old town. These days, of course, it's just part of Munich, really. And the lovely thing about Schloss Nymphenburg, which, by the way, means Castle of the Nymphs, we'll come to that a bit later, the lovely thing about it is that it was built to celebrate the birth of a baby. The year was 1664. The proud parents were the elector, that's what the kings of Bavaria were called before they were kings, the elector Ferdinand Maria of Bavaria and his wife Henrietta Adelaide of Savoy. And they were delighted that their firstborn was a little boy, so a son and heir, and they felt that the best way to celebrate that was to have the Italian architect Agostino Barelli designed for them a palace which they could use as a summer residence. When the baby, who was called Max Emmanuel, grew up, he of course inherited all of this and he had the building extended, he added the side galleries and some of the pavilions and successors further down the line also added things. They all kept to the original tradition of it being a very glamorous, beautiful palace with fantastic decor, as shown in the original Baroque ceiling paintings. Max Emmanuel, so the baby who grew up, also redesigned the Schloss Park, the castle gardens. He got French garden designers in because he wanted a Baroque garden and he wanted it, as so many royalty from around Europe at the time did, he wanted to model himself on Versailles. So he had a Baroque garden created that looked a bit like the one at Versailles. And the Schloss Park, the castle grounds, has been over the centuries a favourite place for the residents of Munich to visit particularly in the summer, to stroll about to have some downtime. If you're wondering wondering why it's called the Nymphenburg, that's because, I suppose it's obvious really, that it was the name that Henrietta Adelaide chose for her castle that she was having designed. She wanted to dedicate the palace to the goddess Flora. I suppose that's fitting for a summer palace really, the goddess of flowers. And it's dedicated not just to Flora, but also to her nymphs. So that's why it's the Nymph Castle or Schloss Nymphenburg in German. Okay, so, so much for an introduction. Let's have a little look at what there is inside. As ever, with all these amazing residences, there's far more to see than probably, if we're honest, you're going to trek round. So I'm going to mention just a few of the rooms inside, which are particularly worthy of note. And then we'll do a little tour of the gardens and look at some of the hunting lodges and things and call that done. So, a room you cannot miss, the very first central room called the Great Hall in English, the Steinersaal in German, is a central pavilion. It's described rather nicely in the rough guide that I read as a riot of Rococo stucco work. So, yet more Rococo. It was designed in 1775, overseen actually by somebody you heard about in the last episode, if you hadn't heard of him before, and that was the French architect Cuvillier. So he of the lovely theatre, he was also the man who designed the inside of this great hall. It stretches through the building from front right the way to the back. So it's a great place to look out from and get a view of the grounds. 
Equally grand is the vast Rococo ballroom known as the Festsaal, which really means party hall or celebration hall, in which all the decorations are devoted to Flora, the goddess for whom the palace or to whom the palace was dedicated. Slightly more controversial is the Schönheitsgalerie, called in the English guides Gallery of Beauties. This was Ludwig I's room where he kept a collection of portraits of the most famous beauties of the day. And the question on everyone's lips, of course, was how well exactly did he know all of them? There are 36, depends which guide you read, sometimes 38. I forgot to count them, that sort of number anyway, of portraits in there of the beauties of the day. Women, interestingly, from all sections of society. So one painting that a lot of people remember is one of somebody called Helena Zedelmeyer, who was a daughter of a shoemaker. And she's wearing the most beautiful gown, which it's believed was gifted to her from Ludwig, especially for the portrait. So there are lots of different women there, but the one that most people have heard of and are keen to see is the lady called Lola Montez strange, exotic-sounding name. Lots more coming about her a bit later, but suffice to say that that wasn't her real name. That was kind of an invented name which she used to give herself a much more exotic profile than perhaps she had when she was born in Ireland as Eliza Gilbert. But we'll come to her. Okay, so the Gallery then, this gallery of beauties. I don't know what Ludwig's wife made of it, but Ludwig liked to have paintings of all his favourite women lined up one after the other for him to wander about and look at. There's a suite of residential rooms, including the Queen's bedroom, which is the room in which you can see a four-poster bed covered in beautiful dark green silk. This is the room, and indeed the bed, in which the King Ludwig II was born. And there's quite a detailed description of that night in the book called The Mad King, written by Greg King, which is listed in the reading lists. Mr King explains how the Crown Princess Marie was making everybody worried. This baby was on its way, but people were worried because she'd had a miscarriage earlier in the year. And so the idea of her having a healthy born baby right to term was very exciting for everybody, her husband, of course, but also the people of Munich and Bavarians generally. And, of course, they were all hoping that it would be a son because that would secure the Wittelsbach succession into the next generation. So here's a short quotation from the book explaining exactly what happened. Quote, At half past midnight on Monday the 25th of August 1845, the lusty cry of a baby dispelled the tension of that anxious night. Marie had given birth to a healthy, dark-haired, dark-eyed son, an heir presumptive to the Bavarian throne. The baby's grandfather, King Ludwig I, immediately sent an equerry to convey the happy news, and within the hour all of Munich was awoken by the pealing of church bells and the thunder of a hundred guns announcing the birth of the boy born one day to be king. And then Greg King goes on to relate how the very next day an archbishop was summoned, one Archbishop Gubschatzattel from Munich, to christen the baby, a ceremony that was performed in the Festsaal of the Nymphenburg Palace. And he describes King Ludwig, so the baby's grandfather, who seemed to take a very big role in all of this, carried the baby in to the Festsaal on a velvet cushion, baby of course all dressed up in the Wittelsbach christening mantle. And there, in that lovely room with the frescoes and the Baroque arches and all the gold-leaf decoration, Ludwig was baptised. 
He was, in fact, baptised Otto Friedrich Wilhelm, but a few days later, his grandfather, King Ludwig, again playing quite a role, decided that maybe that wasn't the best name for him. The day the baby had been born was the feast day of St Ludwig, who is the patron saint of Bavaria. It was, in fact, King Ludwig's the first's birthday as well, so both of those coincidences made him think that really this baby would have to be called Ludwig. So he asked mum and dad if they would change the name, and sure enough, he wasn't going to be Otto anymore as he'd actually been baptised. He was going to be Ludwig, so he became, when he grew up, Ludwig II. So, so much for the castle inside. Let's go out into the Schloss Park, the castle grounds, and think about what's there. Well, a lake, some fountains, a canal, and scattered about several hunting lodges. It was deemed important for these kings to have somewhere to go, somewhere out in the grounds where they could escape the strict court ceremony and do a bit more relaxing. So there were three or four of these dotted around. One of them's called the Amalienburg, that was built by Elector Karl Albrecht, and he dedicated it to his wife, who was called Maria Amalia. So that's where it gets its name from. It might be a hunting lodge, but it's lavishly decorated in gilt and in crystal, design all dreamt up by one François Cuvillier. You've heard of him already, I think. So while it's out in the forest and somewhere to go to relax, it's pretty regal and sumptuous. Not least, in fact, because it has a Spiegelsaal, a hall of mirrors, which is a beautiful silver room where the themes are things like Diana, goddess of hunting, of course, and Bacchus, the god of wine. So that gives you an idea what sort of events were proposed to be held in this room. And in fact, it was used for banquets, for balls, for concerts. And it's described rather nicely in the rough guide as, quote, a ravishing setting for a party. Okay, so that's the Amalienburg, and then another of these hunting lodges is called the Pagodenburg, as in pagoda. So it was built, as in the fashion of the day, on a Chinese theme. It was built in the 18th century in the shape of a Chinese tea house, two stories high, very trendy, very fashionable, and called Pagodenburg, in fact, because the word pagod is a Chinese word for god, so it, it really means temple. Further round in the park, there's something called the Badenburg, so Bart means bath or spa. Bath in this case, because what it actually was, was a swimming pool, a sauna and a bathhouse. Somewhere where the court bathing culture could be enjoyed without prying eyes looking on. And then my favourite one is a little building called the Magdalene which really means the Hermitage of St Mary. Built by Maximilian Emmanuel as a hideaway and I really enjoyed the description in the eyewitness guide of this building because what it said about it was the following quote after a lifetime of revels Maximilian Emmanuel commissioned a hermitage where he could pray and meditate slightly sarcastic I think it luxuriates in its own grotto there's a built-in chapel and then there are some panelled living rooms so it wasn't really your actual hermitage with a very poor and mean and no decorations it was just Maximilian Emmanuel's idea of slumming it a bit. There are two museums in the grounds, which are very interesting and quite linked to German culture, both of them in their different ways. So the first one is the Porcelain Factory Museum. This Porcelain Factory Museum dates from 1745, when Maximilian III came up with a scheme to bail out the state finances, which were not in a good way. Porcelain was just coming into fashion, and he decided that they would have a porcelain factory put up and see if they could make some money from that. Actually, to start with, they didn't do very well. 
at all. They lost lots of money, but they began to get the hang of things and eventually it succeeded. And 10 years later, in 1755, the factory received its first commission from the Bavarian court. And shortly after that, they got successful with actually putting colour paintings onto porcelain. So then business really took off. A great patron of theirs in the 19th century was Ludwig I, who commissioned a lot of work from them, things like dinner services with copies of famous paintings on them, or dinner services with Bavarian landscapes on them, all the sort of thing that he could, with which he could impress his guests. And at the turn of the 19th, 20th century, in fact, the porcelain factory did move with the times because they began producing ceramics with a Jugendstil theme. So the newest art movement that we'll come to uh, when we do the, the episode on art. And the second museum that might be of interest is the Marstall Museum, also in the grounds, meaning in English a carriage museum. And it's one of the greatest collections of coaches in Europe. You can, for example, see the Paris coronation coach there, which was used in 1742 for the coronation of the Emperor Charles VII. And you can see lots of the carriages and sleighs of King Ludwig II. I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that he was given to charging about forests late at night on sleighs, and he had special sleighs designed for him, some of which ended up in this museum. And then slightly later again, between the time of Ludwig II and the coming of the motor car, there is a selection of very elegant, less fancy, but certainly elegant coaches from the time of the Prince Regent, Prince Luitpold, who died in 1912. So all of that can be seen in the Marstall Museum. So that ends what I wanted to say about the building itself. And secondly, I wanted to cover the life of King Ludwig I, the one who had the portrait gallery put up, and talk a little bit about him himself and quite a lot more about the most interesting stroke controversial thing in his life, which was his relationship with Lola Montez. So Ludwig I ruled as King of Bavaria from 1825 until 1848. 1848 isn't when he died, he lived another 20 years, but it is the year when he was persuaded, stroke made to, abdicate because he'd blotted his copybook in various ways. Earlier on in his reign, he was known for being two things really. He was known for being quite authoritarian, so he had views on things like the press, he was very into censoring the press, and he used to have what he called subversives arrested, and that could be students, journalists, professors, anybody who was talking or writing the sort of thing he didn't like would come under his scrutiny. But the second thing for which he left his mark was much more positive than that, and that was for his patronage of the arts. And in that, I would include architecture. So the author of Munich, the Golden Age, makes his point very strongly and talks about how Ludwig, quote, gave his capital city its architectural soul with streets like beautiful interiors and buildings like museums, which they often were, and great halls that were almost like pages from an encyclopedia. When he came to the throne in 1825, Munich was quite provincial, a little bit of a backwater really compared to, say, Paris or Berlin, but Ludwig himself said that he wanted to make Munich an Athens on the Isar, the Isar being the river, of course. And so to achieve that, he invested in works of art and architectural projects. He made the layout of the city much more formal and grand. He built the Ludwigstrasse, for example, and the Ludwigskirche. You can see he had a habit of naming things after himself. And halfway along the Ludwigstrasse is the Siegestor, so the Victory Arch. So he's very much had his eye on Paris and Berlin and wanted Munich to be just as important. 
He spent a lot of money on the arts. He had the Glyptothek built, which is the museum in which you can see classical sculptures, and also the Alta Pinacothek, so the older of the two city art galleries. He was very keen to let everybody know that what his plans were, and he actually said, quote, I want to make Munich a city that should bring such glory to Germany that no one knows Germany when he hasn't seen Munich. End of quote. So quite aware that really they couldn't rival Berlin yet, but his plan was that they certainly would be able to. And a respected German art historian known as Professor Wilhelm Lübke wrote the following about Ludwig I. Quote, Perhaps no other monarch has ever fostered art with the same insight, comprehensiveness and thoroughness. While most princes and patrons have simply employed art as the plaything of their idle moments or for their private glorification, King Ludwig I may claim the immortal glory of having correctly grasped its lasting national significance. But all of that notwithstanding, in the year 1848, which was in fact a year when there were revolutions throughout Europe, that was the year when Ludwig was pretty much forced to abdicate. He was not popular any longer, partly because of his strict reputation. He'd fallen out with a lot of people who wanted more freedom of speech. But actually, mainly, his demise was brought about by the lack of respect that his people had for him because of what's the most colourful episode in his life, namely his affair with the dancer Lola Montes. And that's a story I propose to tell you now in quite a lot of detail. Lola was born, actually called Eliza Gilbert. She was born in Ireland to a military dad and perhaps the first sign that her life was going to be slightly less than totally conventional, her mother was a 13-year-old Creole chorus girl. And in fact, I think that's probably why she got away in later life with changing her name to something quite exotic and making people forget that she was British or Irish and swallow the idea that she had something more exotic in her background. I think she claimed often to be Spanish. Anyway, the family moved to India and when she was a young lady, late teens I think, they were on the ship home, her father's time there was perhaps finished, and she met a man on the ship with whom she eloped and that was the start really of her adventures. She fetched up in Paris as a dancer and it wasn't long before she started doing some really quite outrageous things. Far too many to mention, but I'll just give you a flavour by telling you that, for example, she took herself to a, a Liszt concert in Dresden and managed to meet Liszt himself and ended up having an affair with him. She was making her living as a dancer, but was claimed by many people to have had really no talent at all. There's an admirer in Paris quoted in James Morton's book, Lola Montez, Her Life and Conquests, this admirer wrote the following about her attempts to dance. Quote, the crowd went to see her dance, not for her talent, but for her very original beauty and enormously eccentric outfits. Not too long after that, a short aside, a, a duel to the death was fought over her. She had affairs with people like Robert Peel, son of the former Prime Minister Robert Peel, etc, etc, etc. She arrived in Munich not long after this. She seemed to have a contract to dance at the Hoftheater. And of course, it wasn't long before she'd secured herself an audience with Ludwig. And it's said that for this audience, she either took a pair of scissors to her dress or she simply tore it. But anyway, she presented herself with a dress cut much lower than really it was supposed to be. And Ludwig, of course, was totally smitten. On his 36th wedding anniversary, he was much older than she was, 
he went to the theatre to see her dance. And James Morton's description on that, that is quite amusing because he writes, quote, There was enough applause, but again, opinions about her talent were divided. Everyone, however, agreed upon her beauty. Anyway, whatever everyone thought, the king was very taken with her and he started writing letters to friends, telling them in no uncertain terms that he was completely bowled over. And he decided that he would have Lola's portrait in his gallery of beauties, thinking, I think, that if she came along for sittings, that would be a good way to meet her. And it wasn't long before they were seeing a lot of each other. She stayed in a hotel and he would turn up in an afternoon or of an evening, sometimes both, and disappear into her room. Sittings for the portrait were held and it wasn't long before Ludwig was totally in love with her, completely enslaved. It was common knowledge that he was seeing a lot of her and behind the scenes he was giving her a very great financial rewards. So she had an allowance of 10,000 florins, which was a huge amount of money. It's thought at that time a university professor would be earning 2,000 florins a year, a cabinet minister 6,000, but Lola was being paid 10,000. In addition to that, he bought her a house. And uh, there's a quotation in the book from a letter which Lola wrote in which she couldn't help boasting about how well she'd done. She wrote the following, quote, I have a lovely property, horses, servants, in some everything that could surround the official mistress of the King of Bavaria. All of Munich waits upon me, ministers of state, generals, great ladies. The king shows his great love for me. Hostility to Lola from everyone but the king seemed to be very forthcoming. Not surprisingly, really, the ministers were worried about the influence she was having. People were known to be thrown into prison for having affronted her. She did seem to be quite a drama queen, was quite capable of falling out with people and having them threaten her or hit her and then have them clapped into prison for it. The king's sister, Carolina Augusta, pleaded with him to give her up. Crowds would follow her about and throw horse manure at her and shout insults at her, throwing stones up at her bedroom window on occasion, all sorts of ways of just saying they didn't like her and didn't think much of her. But Ludwig wouldn't give in. His council of state held a meeting to discuss whether she should be allowed German citizenship and she was duly granted it. I don't think Ludwig was going to allow anybody to refuse her. And although they were forced to give in, they weren't above writing what they thought in the document that accompanied the permission. So somebody wrote, quote, about national pride being deeply offended because Bavaria believes itself governed by a foreigner whom the public regards as a branded woman and any number of opposing facts could not slake this belief. But as hostility mounted, Ludwig just got more and more besotted. There was an incident where Lola gave him a marble cast of her foot and he told a friend that he had, quote, covered it with ardent kisses. Lord Palmerston's nephew, one Stephen Henry Sullivan, wrote to his uncle the following, quote, The influence and power of Lola Montez over the mind of the King of Bavaria is so great that everyone is alarmed. She has beauty, talent, and so violent a character, she is the exasperation of all classes, and the idea of dethroning the king is daily gaining ground. End of quote. So, yes, you can see how momentum is building to get rid of her. Eventually, she went too far even for Ludwig. She got mixed up in the street in some student unrest and had to go and hide in the Theatinerkirche and be rescued by the police. And at this, even Ludwig was pretty furious. And in the end, he agreed to the idea that really, 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 she should leave Munich. And she ended up in exile in Switzerland, although that didn't stop her writing to him continually and asking him to abdicate and live with her. 
In fact, in the end, he did abdicate under pressure from lots of other quarters, but he didn't go and live with her. He was succeeded by his son Maximilian and she was surrounded for in future years by more scandals involving bigamy and her various attempts at earning her crust by dancing and giving lecture tours and things. And she eventually ended up in America where she died in Manhattan in 1860, aged only 43. She was visited in her last days by an actor friend called Edward P. Hingston who wrote the following, quote, Poor wayward Lola, she who had lived in a palace in Munich, had become an occupant of an upstairs back room in a small house. Consumption reft her face of its beauty. She was buried in Brooklyn, in New York. The epitaph printed in the records of the New York stage said it all. Quote, Born with a ruler's mind and a warrior's will, she became the very plaything of circumstance and sank broken-hearted and poverty-stricken into the humblest of all graves. So with that sad ending, I think that's pretty much the end of the episode. An episode which, I don't know about you, has made me think of how many strange people we've met from Henrietta Adelaide, who built a palace for her newborn son, to son himself, Max Emmanuel, who repented his life of debauchery by building a hermitage in his garden, to Ludwig I, who stamped his grandeur all over Munich, but then fell prey to somebody who ended his reign and perhaps most of all Lola Montez the nobody who outdid everybody with her flamboyance and her lust for power brings to mind that Yorkshire phrase does it not there's now so queer as folk okay so that's the end of this episode which I hope you've found interesting and I hope too that you'll join me next week for episode four when in fact if just when you were thinking there isn't another character as colourful as Lola Montez I think I can offer you one and that is Ludwig's grandson the baby that we were talking about a few minutes ago in his christening the baby who grew up to be Ludwig the second and we're going to have a look at him and his life and particularly one of the palaces just on the outskirts of Munich are on the Starnbergersee, Lake Starnberg, which is very connected with him. It's a nice day out or afternoon out from city centre Munich. So I'm going to I'm going to slot that in in the hope that you might enjoy it. OK, so for the moment, I'm just going to sign off in German and hope that you'll join me again next week. But for the moment, thank you very much and auf Wiederhören. <laughs>